Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right, good evening. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. Tonight's event is sponsored by the Institute of World Politics IAFI student chapter. I would like to thank Dr. Richard Schultz for joining us this evening to discuss his book, Transforming U.S. Intelligence for Irregular War. So without further ado, I will hand it over to tonight's moderator, Professor Aaron Danis. Floor is yours. Thank you. And uh, welcome to, to Dr. Schultz. Uh, welcome to IWP, just in case Anybody's wondering, uh, my background is the inside of Marlott Mansion at lovely IWP. And if you, the students you see back there are not live students violating um, the six foot rule. Um, they are, this is just a background screen. So, but it does give, a, give you an opportunity to see the inside of our lovely um, institute. Um, so tonight I'm introducing Dr. Richard Schultz who, who wrote the, uh, the book in, uh, that's our topic tonight. He is the Lee E. Dirks Professor of International Politics and the Director of International Security Studies at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He's the author of several books, including The Marines Take Anbar, The Four-Year Fight Against Al-Qaeda, and uh, along with uh, Andrea Du, Insurgents, Terrorists, and Militias, The Warriors of Contemporary Combat, one of my favorite books, which I use for my Violent Non-State Actors course, so thanks for that one, Dick. I couldn't, couldn't do it without your book. Um, the, the book for tonight is based on his original study for the Joint Special Operations University called Military Innovation and War. It takes a learning organization case study of Task Force 714. He took that um, short monograph and has expanded it um, to, a, to this much longer book. Um, he's well-connected uh, with the US Special Operations community. And just as a point of advertisement, as I've already mentioned, I've used his books in my, in my courses previously and currently. And uh, welcome to IWP, Dick. And I'll turn it over to you to give some background on your, on your book and anything you want to say about it uh, before we go into discussion. Well, first of all, Aaron, thank you for that um, warm introduction. I really appreciate it. And um, it, uh, it's good to be um, to do this, I've had a long, uh, long-standing connection with the institute, including um, with um, with Frank Marlowe, who I've known since um, the uh, the 1990s when he was a student at the Fletcher School. Um, the the book um, really is um, is an outgrowth of this long, um, long-standing interest and connection I've had with the special operations community really going back into the 90s and, and the early 90s um, when, um, when SOCOM was first uh, stood up. And um, I became intrigued with um, the idea of 714 when I was traveling around Morocco with my wife and son. Uh, we were driving the whole country. And, and I went, when I wasn't driving, I was reading. 
um, because you know you, you can get you can only see so much of certain landscape and 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 you get get bored with it. I was reading Stan McChrystal's memoir, um, and my share of the task, and um, and and so I I got interested in in this story of how seven one four transformed itself because you know seven one four comes out of the tier one forces. It's the JSOC forces, and um, and they're best in the world, uh, and um, and with a, with um, uh, all that goes with that. But when they got to Iraq, they were given this mission uh, of getting inside of and and destroying Al Qaeda's secret networks. And what they found was that no matter how hard they worked at it, they they couldn't make a dent in the organization. Is what um, McChrystal said when I interviewed him. You know, we couldn't even make a dent in it. So what that meant was that they had to transform themselves um, in the midst of war uh, to be able to deal with an enemy that they had never envisioned fighting. And um, and over a two-year period, they they did transform themselves, and they did it by. Um, changing uh, the whole way they were organized into a joint interagency task force, which was really a joint interagency intelligence task force, um, and to um, to change um, how they uh, collected and used um, intelligence that they were gathering. So the way to understand the, this transformation is pretty simple. In in August of two thousand and four working as hard as they could, the, the best in the world could carry out maybe 30 missions in a month against Al-Qaeda uh, elements of their different networks. Two years later, in August of 2006, they carried out 300 missions. Now they didn't add, uh, you know, 15, the, the, the number of teams didn't become 15 times bigger. So the the question you know I had was how'd they do it you know and um, and why were they able to do it and so that that really um, led me to um, to uh, approach this from the point of view of organizational innovation and transformation you know and I built this framework that I call the characteristics of learning organizations, what happens, you know, what organizations when they face a crisis in practice, and, and what I mean by that is that, that they may be very good at what they do. They may be even the best at what they do, but for reasons that, that, um, that they have to figure out, they're no longer able to, to accomplish their mission. Or, or whatever they're, 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 they do. And so I spent a lot of time reading um, business and management literature from the 90s and the early 2000s that, that deal with the issue of just this. What happens when an organization faces a complex problem and they can't solve it? And so that led me to develop this framework called Characteristics of Learning Organization. And I used it to, to study how 714 transformed this and how intelligence transformed 
you know, to deal with a new context, war, um, and, and war not against the state, but against non-state actor, and, and war against a non-state actor that um, wasn't constructed and built like 20th century armed groups. It was a 21st century uh, new iteration that was networked. And so that's the story of the book of how 714 was able to do that and really eviscerate uh, Al-Qaeda's um, secret networks over a period of about three years. So I'll, you know, I'll stop there. Well, and it's great that, um, you know, you looked at it from the perspective you, that you did. And another key piece to this, and for, for those who are out there, I did a review of um, Dick's book for Intelligence and National Security Journal. I mentioned this in the, in the review. It was posted recently on their website um, that, you know, Task Force 714 had an exceptional batch of leaders as well. Um, in addition to General McChrystal, um, it's kind of a who's who of counterterrorism in the years following. Um, Bill McRaven from, from the Bin Laden raid. Um, Colonel Mike Flynn, who would later become director of, of DIA. Um, ben Sakalik, who would eventually become the head of DSOP at NCTC. And Scott Miller, who would go on um, to, to run this very same unit. So um, it, it, how much role did leadership play in, in this as well? You know, not just McChrystal, but having good subordinates for him. No, it was huge, you know, and, and it included Joe Votel. Yes. You know, I as well. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and you know, I mean, I talked to all of them except Scotty Miller because I, it was hard to get to him because he was otherwise engaged. Um, yeah. But um the 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 role of leadership here is is really important, but it's a new kind of leadership. You know, it it's not leadership that that you know that it's the boss that makes all the decisions and drives the organization. Um, now, it, McChrystal's approach, which really became um, Admiral McRaven's approach and Joe Votel's approach and Tony Thomas's approach. Yes, yeah, Tony so, Thomas. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was really um, uh, uh, changing the way that um, that they had been schooled to lead, which was, you know, to to be the force that made decisions that drove the organization. They decentralized that, they and decentralized they empowered it. those at the bottom. Not only did they decentralize it, but they flipped it on its head from operations heavy first to Intel first to drive the operations. As you point out in the book, they, they end up with 80% intelligence, 20% operations, and those oper continued operations are focused on collecting more intelligence. And uh, that, that begats the whole F3 EAD construct, which is, is well known now, but didn't exist prior to this really, except on a very small level. Um, and, uh, and that's what allowed them to take what it was essentially a counterterrorism uh, technique and apply it to a larger counterinsurgency fight. Uh, right. Could you talk about that a little bit? Because that's kind of an interesting juxtaposition that they're doing, in, as you called it, industrial-sized counterterrorism yeah. to feed an insurgency. 
Yeah. Well, and, you know, that was a big part of their transfer transformation because they were built, um, you know, through the 90s to be an organization that would be used occasionally. Um, as we know, it was never used at all. But but it was for, you know, a handful, maybe a handful of operations a year or maybe only a couple a year. You know, now they they have to be operating every day uh, and, and, and at a, a rate that was unprecedented. So, and, and they had to leverage other special operations units other than their own to, to, oh, to get the manpower for this. The Ranger Regiment, some of the white special forces. Isn't that, isn't that what they had to do? Absolutely. You know, so for instance, um, the Rangers, which I, I don't talk about it in, in, in the book because I'm focused on Al-Qaeda, but the Rangers were focused on, you know, some of the Shia groups. You know, they were doing the same thing to the Shia groups um, that uh, uh, seven, the other parts of 714 were doing to Al-Qaeda. I, I just didn't cover that that part in, in the book. I, I want to say also that, um, you know, you talked about this flip from 80% uh, operations, 20% intelligence to the, the opposite. And, and the person who really um, deserves a lot of credit for that is, is General Flynn, then, then, then Colonel Flynn, you know, who, who, who really uh, impressed on um, this on, on General McChrystal. Then they had to figure out, okay, how do we do that? Yeah, and um, it, it's it, it's funny because they do that, and you know, it becomes a self-sustaining chain reaction. Mm -hmm. And you know, my focus in, in my my review was on the intelligence portion of this, obviously for the journal that it was written for. And um, you did a great job at going into and talking about how they took this really granular. Um, tactical intelligence, pocket litter, um, you know, busting cell phones, things like that, and turned it into a, a, a way in very short order to stay in front of the decision cycle of the insurgency itself. Yeah. You know, the key is, is to take out a cell and then get that information and be able to take out the next cell before they can tell the first cell was actually, was actually captured. And that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. Well, and, and to, you know, to be able literally to construct what a cell looks like. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you may get one person in it, but then all that stuff that you're collecting, if you, if you curate it and you condition it uh, properly, you can put it into a database that then you can start to use tools to search for things you don't even know about, connections you don't even know about, but because of the, the feeding the, the, the information you collected on, on this, from this guy into it, you start to see that architecture. Yeah, and, and, that, and that certainly allows you to operate much more quickly. Um, even though working at that pace, the insurgency was so large, um, it took them, you know, essentially years to do it. And that, that was through the surge, the surge period, where additional conventional forces were brought in. 
And, uh, it, you know, it took a long time. It just took a long time because the insurgency was so large, plus the huge influx of foreign fighters from outside, upwards of 30,000 foreign fighters. Um, you know, well, and, and to go to your point, Aaron, that you asked me, um, this, uh, the 714 uh, uh, effort um, would have not been um, successful without it being integrated into the counterinsurgency effort. And so those two things went hand in hand um, in the, because um, all, all in the past, insurgencies have always had a secret infrastructure. So in, in the Vietnam War, you know, I'll go back to the Vietnam War, the Viet Cong had a secret infrastructure. The, 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 and, and there was an organization that was created to get at that infrastructure, you know, which was very controversial. That was Phoenix. But, 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 but Phoenix, you know, was, even though it was controversial, it was, it was correct from the point of view of how do you uh, attack an insurgency. Counterinsurgency can do a lot. It can clear, uh, it can hold areas, mm -hmm. but counterinsurgent forces cannot do counter infrastructure or counter, yeah, what I call counter infrastructure. There, you, you have to have a special capability. 714 was that special capability. Yeah, and, and people don't realize, I think, at least folks who are looking at it from the outside, that you know the special operations community, they say it themselves, and, and the, the commander of SOCOM says it every year in his annual report to Congress, you know, that they rely on the big military for a lot of a lot of things that they can't do themselves, for a lot of the um, the logistics, the the lift, a lot of the things that um, you know, big, big military, big army, big, big air force takes for granted, you know, the special operations forces need that assistance. So, um, and you bring that out in your, in your book, uh, yeah. I think is really good. Yeah, no, it was, you know, it, it had, they had to be combined mm -hmm. and, but big army had to stop fighting, uh, in, in the way that they would fight with the way they fought in the march up and change to fighting against an insurgency that that caused that was a big change too and you know look it took uh the regular army to 2007 to make that change i mean that was petraeus that was the petraeus uh uh phenomenon the marines did it a year earlier in anbar um how about um working with allied countries you mentioned um, you know, in addition to SOCOM's own experience working in places like Colombia and Bosnia, other places at a smaller level, you know, they, they learn some lessons. But you mentioned in particular, they go to the Israelis. Talk a little bit about, about how the Israelis helped uh, the U.S. in this regard. Well, the Israelis um, uh, uh, came to understand that, um, that they had to essentially become uh, their 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 counterterrorism forces had to be intelligence driven, and and the way that I found this out is is really the the story of how 
in research, you you stumble on things, and 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 you, that you didn't know you were going to stumble on. So, I was um, in Israel, and I was giving a talk on 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 seven one four before the book. I I had developed a whole presentation on it for for SOCOM, which I gave when I deployed with teams, the military training and education teams. So I I was in Israel. I was teaching at one of the universities. I go over to Tel Aviv, they have a, a security studies institute, headed by a very famous uh, Israeli two-star um, who, who had an intelligence background, Amos Yadlin. And I'm giving the presentation and I'm talking about McChrystal and 714, and he says this very strange thing to me. He goes, oh yeah, Stan McChrystal. Starting in 2004, he came to Israel because it's the only place in the region he could find a comfortable bed to sleep in. So I thought, that's rather strange, but I, I didn't really get it. About a, um, a year later, I'm reading this very interesting book um, by, uh, called Rise and Kill First. Mm -hmm. It's a story of Israeli targeted killing. And it's going through the, you know, the, the go back before Israel was a state and I'm going through the 50s, you know. And then I get to the late 90s. And as I'm reading it, I'm reading it and I'm thinking, this sounds an awful lot like some of the techniques that 714 did. So no, this never came up in any interviews. So I, I go back to Israel and I go to see Amos Yadlin. Then I see the, the, the former chief of the IDF. And then I see some, some other people in, in Shinbet and, and in, in Mossad. And, and I, I get this whole story that, that not only did 714 learn from them, but they learned a great deal from them. And they, 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 they mined the Israeli experience. So that was really pretty interesting. And I stumbled on it. You know, a weird remark. Yeah. Reading a book, putting two to two two together, and then being able to go back to Israel and and talk to Yadlin, especially who was the action officer for all seven one four learning. Well, it's uh, it's an interesting story. And to mine an organism, you know, a country that has a lot of CT experience that goes back, you know, even farther than a lot of what the U.S. has for experience, um, seemed like seems like a logical thing to do in hindsight. But you know, a lot of people might not think of it in the in the moment, you know, to and miss that opportunity. So I think that's that's fantastic. Um, one last topic, and I want to go to questions. I'm going to turn it over to Dan. Uh, for the for the questions, I'm looking at the Q and A here, and we're already getting um, a few things in here. Um, the last thing is, uh, about a year ago, we had um, just newly retired Lieutenant General Mike Nagata come in and speak at IWP. Um, he uh, came in under McChrystal. He's uh, um, you know one of the um, McChrystal crew. And uh, when uh, he worked at uh, NCTC in his last assignment, um, he mentioned a lot that the F3 EAD construct was, is outstanding. We are, the United States is now probably the country in the world that's, that's best at that. 
kind of targeting cycle and taking out terrorist networks, um, uh, whether it's industrial scale or, or less than that. Um, his concern is, is keeping terrorists off the battlefield, that you know, as fast as we take them off uh, kinetically or uh, you know, via arrest or detention, um, they seem to be replaced. So his concern in his last uh, three years of his career and what he talked about when he came to IWP was non-kinetic terrorism, um, looking at things like winning the internet, uh, winning the battle for narratives, defeating terror finance, defeating terrorist travel, their ability to move foreign fighters, you know, you know, from from Birmingham, England, into across into Turkey, across into Iraq, all of these kind of non-kinetic issues, um, and there's more. Um, in your experience, and this is just, I'm, you can just keep it broad, you know, in your time, you know, researching your book, did that ever come up at all that, hey, we need to do something about drying up the supply of bad guys instead of just taking them out? Um, did any of that ever come up in any of your research? No, it, it did. Um, although, um, not a lot. I mean, so it, it's an interesting uh, uh, thing that, uh, that, 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 um, Mike Nogata has says and and um, but uh, not um, it, it it was not a focus of seven one four. Now what's interesting is that if we think about where we are today, we we we've put a pretty big dent in 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 ISIS and in 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 Al Qaeda. They're still around. They're dispersed. You know, they're in a lot of different places. Yeah. And 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 so the, these issues um, are are getting some traction. In addition to how do you keep them from getting back up off, getting off the, their back? Yeah. You know, as as Bill McRaven said, when you, you have your foot squarely on their chest, you don't want to take it off. And, and, and Aaron, the interesting thing uh, is um, the connection between the way that 714 designed itself, this new broader battle space, and the intersection between the, the soft forces and AI. And this is where Project Maven comes in. Now, I won't go into it in too much detail. But, uh, please mention it because that, that that's your new work. Yeah, um, I just uh, published this um, article with um, with General uh, Rich Clark, who's the CG of the Special Operations Command. He he worked in seven one four against Shia elements back in you know two thousand and seven eight timeframe, and we we have a new article out um, titled "Big Data at War." And it looks at soft uh, um, project maven and 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 the future of of warfare. And that's at the Modern War Institute up at West Point. Yeah, easy to to get to. It, if you just Google um, big data at war, you'll find the link. And there's um, there's a podcast that'll be posted tomorrow that uh, General Clark and I did uh, for the Modern War Institute. Great, thanks. Well, this is perfect timing because we're just about at 1730, 530. 
And I'm going to turn it over to Daniel Haig, who is the president of our IAFI chapter. You can see he has his logo up because his camera's not functioning, but IAFI is the International Association for Intelligence Education, and uh, IWP has a student chapter. In fact, we have the first student chapter of IAFI, and Daniel's our president. He's going to pick up here with the Q&A piece, and he's going to alternate between some of our um, student member questions and the questions that I see are pile, beginning to come up in the window here. We've got uh, three different people with four questions. So Daniel, I'll turn it over to you. You can alternate them as you see fit. Um, if you want to start out with a student question, fine, or you can go with one of the ones in the window. It's all yours. Great. Thank you very much, Professor Danis. And thank you for coming and speaking with us, Dr. Schultz. I, uh, our chapter of IAFI, we read your book. Over the summer, it was one of our uh, first projects that we wanted to do as a chapter, and I, I really enjoyed it, learning uh, about, especially the, as you were talking about, the leadership dynamics and how to kind of instill that going all the way down to be effective. Um, one of our first questions uh, is from a guest, uh, Chris, Chris Orr, uh, former U.S. Air Force Security o uh, Forces officer. He asked... How big a role did Air Force Special Operations members, particularly pararescue jumpers or combat controllers, play in Task Force Seven One Four? Well, they were they were involved in it. I didn't really go into that um, that particular element of Seven One Four because that was really more tactical than 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 I was trying to get at. But um, you know, SAW forces um, are 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 not just uh, not just army, and uh, but I don't know much um, much beyond that. Um, Daniel, I want to thank you for the kind remarks too. By the way, oh, of course, well, thank you. Um, so one of our chapter members sent a question. Uh, Justin, he asked, "How applicable do you think the Task Force Seven One Four strategy?" facing conflicts is with state actors today? Well, I think that, that some of the things that, um, that 714 was involved with uh, are harbingers of, of the way we will deal with peer competitors. And it really has to do with, um, with how you manage big data and, and how you use um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, computer vision, uh, all these tools, which, you know, 714 um, started to use them in terms of taking enormous amounts of data, uh, which were collected on, on these night raids, plus um, quite a bit of, um, of FMV, and, uh, and, 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 and curating and conditioning that data and putting it into a, a, a data management platform that they had a very you know, smart contractor who, who developed that vendor, who developed that platform for them. And, um, and, uh, and then um, in, intelligence officers were able to mine that data. And this was integral in the F3 EAD process. Now, the lessons from that, then um, you can almost draw a straight line from that 
through the, the first years of the second decade of the, of the 21st century, right into Maven. And because, because the consumer for Maven uh, is uh, soft forces. So now, all of that uh, learning and, and the development of a, of a new, very sophisticated platform that, that combines uh, uh, intelligence picture, operation picture, has, an, has the, the Maven algorithm platform into it, um, gets uh, direct feed from FMV. All of that is, is going to be the framework for, for now how conventional forces have to manage peer competitors. And, and if you're gonna be successful against the peer competitors, you have to dominate the intelligence part of it. And, and this whole architecture um, th that's still being refined and developed for the, the, the CT mission will, will roll into the, the, and is already get, starting. It's already started. I mean, I, I won't go into the details because um, I don't want to. I want to make sure I'm careful. I don't say something I, I I shouldn't say. But I can tell you that there is a component of the conventional force that, in two years, wants to be AI enabled, and and so it's coming. Interesting. Yeah, that is something that uh, as a strategic intelligence major uh, or focused here at IWP, that's something I'm learning a lot through my studies is it's no with intelligence. It's not it's no longer lack of data so much as just way too much of it. And how do you find the signals through the noise? And how how do you do it? Not just, you know, how does how does the how does that collection of of massive amounts of data and the use of, of these new tools enable commander decision-making at a speed that, 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 that will be unprecedented. Yeah. It's very, that's a, a very interesting thing to do, especially with evolving situations like that has been, as was the case in Iraq. Right. Uh, Kurt Kloon, Asked, the, were these lessons learned taken from law enforcement, decentralized, intelligence-driven investigations, uh, or and law enforcement task force structure, and information sharing and collaboration? Yeah, well, law enforcement um, starting really around the same time, maybe a little later. That um, that seven one four. Uh, had this um, this vendor that um, that created this data integration and, and data management tool. Law enforcement uh, in in the United States started to use some of those tools as well. The the common denominator here are 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 vendors, and um, and so. It, 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 it's not that, that one learned from, you know, law enforcement learned from, 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 from the military or vice versa, um, but both, um, both had lots of data 
and um, and 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 both had to figure out how to how to you know manage and and benefit from this data, and and law enforcement, especially some of the big um, law enforcement um, agencies, did this. And of course, there's one that has a pretty big CT mission, the one in New York City. And uh, and 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 you know they they were they had big data problem in, in in the form of SIGINT and other things, so they needed this toolbox as well. Let me just hop in. Just want to point out, you know, I'm not sure how much the FBI did with Task Force 714, but you know, F FBI's role in Iraq is really another story that needs to be told someday. We've seen a little bit of a payoff from that because we've got a couple of cases in the U.S. where evidence that they collected off the battlefield there from IEDs, fingerprints, and other biometrics led to cases here in the U.S. I think one in particular um, a few years back, I think it was Kentucky, um, where a couple of former um, AQI bomb emplacers were captured based on fingerprints that they had that were pulled off of uh, I exploded IEDs in Iraq and uh, led to their arrest and imprisonment here in the U.S. when they, they snuck in through a refugee program, a couple of the rare ones that made it through. So the role of law enforcement on the battlefield, the intel role, I think is, is something that has not been a story that hasn't been told yet. Hopefully it'll be told one day. Well, and Aaron, I can tell you that they were there in 714. They were one of the three-letter agencies that were there. So... And, and of course, they brought a lot to the table too, especially in terms of forensics. So um, uh, they're, they're part of the story. I, I never, you know, uh, I mean, I, I never went to, to try to find, you know, FBI uh, individuals who were involved in it because it was, you know, too, too tactical. But there's no question that when, when, um, when, when Bill McRaven said, we need all the three-letter agencies. Um, he included FBI, and FBI did take part in this. All right. Uh, so we have a question from one of our chapter members, Isabel. She asks, at the end of the book, you mentioned that the future of terrorist tactics and techniques are expected to reflect the development of commercially available technology. Of the eight identified areas of concern, which do you believe is most important for the U.S. government and its allies to be focusing CT efforts on? I'm trying to remember what the eight were, um, but I would say that one of the things that um, one area that we definitely should be focusing on uh, is um, is how uh, is the extent to which ISIS is able to recreate their information operation capability. Now, this was really an interesting development because ISIS um, had, had a use of, of social media um, and uh, encryption and even and the use of deep web. Um, as part of an architecture, not just for telling their story, you know, getting the word out, um, which the internet has allowed terrorist groups to do 
in ways that their their 1980s and 1970s and 90s uh, uh, forerunners would have died to have uh, the ability to communicate. But more importantly, that architecture was used to recruit 30 to 50,000 foreign fighters. Now, just think about the significance of that. They were able to do this. And, and I've looked into this quite, quite a bit in terms of what their messaging was, um, how they, they used um, video, um, and then how once they, they, they got someone uh, interested, then how they took that into a, a recruitment effort. So you don't want that to get reconstructed. Um, and, and yeah, okay, they're, they're on the run and they've been beaten down, um, but they have that knowledge. And, um, and so that is one area that um, we really have to focus on. And that kind of goes back to your question, Aaron, about, you know, are we, are we dealing with, you know, the, the information component of this? Now, that's not counter messaging. But what it's doing is it's stopping their messaging, and and if you look at um, if you look at the campaign inherent resolve uh, against ISIS, there was a concerted component of that to take out the physical infrastructure of this because see when they were a state or so-called state, um, they were able to to um, to build their, their information architecture physically, not just virtually. There were physical locations and there were individuals that were identified as key figures in this and they were all targeted. Yeah, so I mean, it's really interesting. Yeah, um, all the lessons um, we learned from AQI were applied to ISIS, and it, it probably contributed to how quickly we were able to defeat ISIS, considering we, the lack, how much less infrastructure the U.S. military had in Iraq, you know, from 20, 2014 and afterwards. Yes, we had people there, but it was nothing. It was not the surge. But I would have to say the less, you know, I, I would attribute some of the our success to the lessons we learned earlier, mm -hmm. um, plus you know having good partners. Mm -hmm. Somebody, somebody had to do some of the heavy lifting to help us. So. Yeah. yeah. All right, Dan. Uh, another question by another another one of our uh, individuals here. Great. Uh, Outside so, individual. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, so Kurt Kloon asked: Does strategic planning have value in counter networks? If so, how? Well. I mean, strategic planning has value in everything. So, um, uh, it, 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 I think now, and I'm not privy to this, but I think that um, that um, the way that we think about um, keeping uh, keeping this uh, Al Qaeda, ISIS. Um, uh, remaining elements, keeping them from from reconstituting themselves, really is more than just a tactical mission. Um, 
it 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 needs um, what I would call a, a, a you know a strategic effort that looks at how you you're going to use not just the the tier one units, um, but how can you use other soft and then other parts really of 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 the U.S. Um, government, especially um, uh, from the intelligence community, um, to to uh, not just keep it down, but but to start to delegitimize it. I mean that that's I think kind of what you were getting at, Aaron. How do we how do we um, deal with this uh, the 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 way that look they were able to recruit fifty thousand, and they had large numbers of people that followed them on the internet. So you know how do we deal with that? We can we can know about it because we got all the, the the tools to do that and ai is going to help you do it even better it already is um but there are other aspects to it yeah, and, and there's been a lot of academic research into you know various network you know looking at network theory and you know um the connectedness of nodes which nodes are more valuable than others sometimes the obvious leader node is not the most important node but it's this this node over here uh, of three or four people, they're the communications node, and they're the ones really keeping the network together. Uh, and probably from a strategic aspect, that kind of analysis would yeah. be of value. Um, you know, looking at the bigger network picture and trying to find out where those nodes are that would, you know, cause the network to, 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 to fracture, so. Yeah, yeah. How, have they, the, how are they trying to re recreate this architecture they had? And, and they certainly have um, a, a number of, um, of, of affiliates in different places. All right, Dan, over to you. Another student question. And then I want to take, we, we have, I think, to have time for like two more questions. One more student question. And we do have a kind of a VIP question here. We have Charles Dufler of the Iraq Survey Group asked a question. Uh, oh. So I want to make sure we get to that one, uh, maybe to, to close up. Uh, it's not often we have uh, uh, folks from Iraq Survey Group hop on our hop on our Q and A. So Dan, get us a student question, and then we'll take Charles uh, Charles Dulfer's questions. Yeah, that's great. I'm uh, excited to hear uh, his answer to Mr. Dulfer's question. Uh, I actually have a question for you, Dr. Schultz. Did Task Force Seven One Four try to leverage the special relationship with the British to analyze their react their actions with Northern Ireland and the troubles and that kind of counterterrorism, counterinsurgency case uh, before they went to the Israelis or did they try to learn from that as all uh, at all? Well, no, they, the British were part of the task force. The, the, the British played a role in it. There's, a, there's actually a book written um, by a, a British journalist on, on this. It was an early book. But but oh no, the British um, uh, were were involved uh, with this um, really early on, and um, they, they have a famous commander now. I'm forgetting his name, um, who was um, who who was McChrystal's counterpart. But but um, absolutely, I mean the answer is yes. Fantastic. All right. Our question from Mr. Dolfer is, in 2003, there were many raids, various units, but one we called Task Force Tomorrow. Uh, 
based on bad intelligence that resulted in rounding up potentially sympathetic Iraqis in jail and creating lots more enemies. Forward deployed intelligence units were awful. Is part of your point that the cycle of collection, analyze, and task further collection is the forward deployed analysis? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, point, the, the point I would make is, and I know about some of that, and, um, and it's a fact that, you know, it, not every, um, every uh, raid that 714 uh, carried out um, actually was successful. I mean, it, it is war. It is war. But the, the, the key uh, to, uh, to minimizing that, and, and by the way, you know, and 714 was, was you know, I, I called it a, an industrial strength. Um, killing machine, but it, it really was an industrial strength capturing machine. And um, and let me just so, but but the 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 collection um, and 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 development of of databases that you could really search and mine were were uh, aimed at at giving much more. Um, uh, supportable evidence to targeting you know so that you 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 avoided obviously some of those 2003 mistakes now i, I want to just talk about for a second um interrogation because um 714 at its um at its height had about 300 interrogators which you know is an, and and support you know al, uh, operators uh, uh, that are specialists in interrogation, and the interesting thing was that Mike Flynn said the following. This really gets it. So Flynn said in interrogating someone, I wanted this individual to think that I knew him better than he knew himself, and the way that that we were going to do that is. That we we before we interrogated him, we had his phone, we had we had maybe his computer, um, we we were able to 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 put that right into our our big database. We were able to start to look for uh, connections and correlations, and pretty soon, we we did know a hell of a lot about that person. So we might say to to someone, you know. Um, uh, tell me about your 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 association with um, uh, with Aaron, and and you know the guy says Aaron who? Uh, I don't know any Aaron. And then then you start to show him all the emails between himself and Aaron, uh, and 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 all of a sudden this this guy starts to think, holy cow. You know, they they know everything about me, and you you start to to do more of this. Um, so uh, the 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 use of of all of this information, you know, had uh, the the applicate the mining of it had many different dimensions to it. Okay, great. I think. Um... We, we did have one other question in the queue. We might as well uh, get it knocked out real quick. This is an easy one. This is kind of 
it's kind of a yes no. Um, did Task Force 714 um, work uh, complement that of Task Force 2021? They may mean 20 and 121. I'm not sure. And 6-26, or did they replace them? That's an easy, that's a that's a softball for you, Dick. Yeah, yeah. No, these were replacements. Um, yeah, the names change. Um, the names change all the time. And I had a hell of a time. By the way, I had a hell of a time getting, um, you know, uh, to be allowed when I wrote the monograph to use 714. And by the way, you'll notice that in, in the monograph, now that's not true in the book, but in the monograph, the, the, the J word is not mentioned. You know, yes. if you go through the monograph, you, 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 you couldn't mention it. And, and that's true, by the way, in, in terms of the, you know, the, the um, big data war. Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't mention it. Even though I remember one, one night I'm, I'm walking through my living room and my wife is watching some police show and they're talking about the J word, which is, of course, JSOC. Um, yeah. You set it up. I know. I know. It's your book, not mine. All right. And what's um, in the book? It's in the book. Um, Daniel, thank you for running the Q&A for us. I appreciate it. Um, before we uh, go, I'm going to turn it over back over to Hannah so she can make some closing remarks. Um, we do, we did have one other thing I'll pass to you afterwards. You got an invite to speak at a rotary club, Dick. So, um, I will, uh, I will pass that invite on to you separately. That act, this actually looks like it could be really good. If you don't, if you, if you don't go, uh, maybe, maybe I'll go in your stead. Um, but, uh, this, uh, this looks like a good invite. Um, just to kind of, uh, you know, wrap up here, I thought the book was really good. I, you know, in, in my review, I said, I think this is a great book for either, you know, on the war college side, uh, because a lot of times we have international partners, you can't go into the classified realm. Um, so this book, I think really the lessons learned piece out of this is really important. And also for other grad school courses, I'm hoping to use this one in the future here, um, maybe my counterterrorism course in the spring. So I, I think it really, um, it really fills a niche and not only a niche, but um, you know, somewhere down the road, as I mentioned in my review, hopefully ISIS doesn't come back as 3.0 or 4.0 or anything else. Um, and we have to remember what we did, um, that we uh, have to grab your book off the shelf to, to remind us what we did. I have a funny feeling our, our special operators will, will probably be doing this for a while. Um, it's the folks at the national level have to remember what we did in the past. So um, where do you see things going in the future here? With, with, with this, with F3 EAD, obviously AI is going to be a big piece of it. Anything else you wanted to add? No, I, I think that um, for for SOF and, and especially for the command, you know, it's about it's going to be a balancing act. You know, how much um, effort do they they put and they will put effort into um, what we now call the, the the peer competitor or you know the return to state competition and, and, and conflict. Um, and that conflict is taking place in, in, a, in a number of new ways already. And then how much effort to this, what I call, in, 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 I think I call it in the book, an enduring CT mission. Mm -hmm. So that, that'll be the, 
the big challenge I think for for soft and and you know and of course as I said there, there's going to be a lot of learning by the conventional force especially about the AI applications um, and how that will help it with um, a, a variety of intelligence sources. Great, thanks. Um, and my, my final parting word here is about our Dean who studied under, under you back in the 1990s, as you mentioned, Dean uh, Frank Marlowe. Uh, I have to know, how did he get out of the Fletcher School without getting the love for New England sports that you and I have. I noticed your Red Sox shirt on the door. Uh, I have to ask this question. Frank is on the line. I see him online here. And he has not gotten the love for New England sports that you and I have. How did that happen? How did you let him get away without that? Well, you know, he, 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 he wasn't there uh, the, the way that we, we have been there. You know, he didn't develop that love um, which you know, was really hard to, to, to express in the 90s. So you remember in, in the 80s, it's I mean, you, you remember what that was like. Yes. But, but, you know, Frank needed a little, little vision because if he had had vision, then he could have celebrated the first two decades of the 21st century by being associated with, with the, the, the area of the world in which there are more champions, more victories, and, uh, and, and more great sports teams, including, I would add, six Super Bowl titles. And All right. Four, with, with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Hannah before we lose all of our all of our listeners who are not New England sports fans. So, Hannah, I'll turn it over to you to make an announcement about upcoming uh, presentations. Uh, Dick, thank you again for coming. You were uh, great on the Q&A today. I uh, really appreciate it, Aaron. All right, Hannah, all yours. Perfect. I don't think anyone can see my video, but I'm not sure how to pull it up. But um, I would like to thank Dr. Schultz for joining us today and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. Just an additional thank you to Professor Danis, Daniel Hagen, the IAP student chapter for hosting this event. It was a very interesting discussion, so we appreciate it. Um, if you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thanks, everyone. Have a great evening.